You are listening to Natural Born Okay, hold, hold up, hold up, hold up. Stop, stop, stop. <clears throat> I just want to say, if you want to support the podcast, go to patreon.com forward slash naturalbornalchemist. Get access to these episodes in advance and go behind the scenes with lots more cool content. Join us on Patreon. Okay, that's all. Uh, on with the show. You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 193 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. What's going on? Hmm. I'm not sure if the best answer to that question is a lot or nothing. Guess it's relative like most things in this realm we call reality. What I like right now is that fall or autumn has arrived where I live. I like it at night when the wind is blowing the leaves across the street where you're walking or driving or biking and you know when it's it's cold but it's not too cold you know it's just perfect nice fresh. There's a beauty in the death of nature. I like it. A new circle is beginning. Now in this episode my guest is Dr. Aaron Cheek and we are going to talk about books, fonts and alchemy. Dr. Aaron Cheek is a scholar of comparative religion, philosophy and esotericism. He is also bringing a number of important projects to fruition through Robido Press and we will be talking a bit about that as well. He currently lives on the west coast of New Zealand where he maintains an active interest in tea, wine, poetry typography and alchemy. Early on in this talk we get on the topic of Fulcanelli. Uh, Fulcanelli was the name used by a French alchemist and esoteric author whose identity is still debated to this day. And one book that we touch a bit upon is called The Mystery of the Cathedrals. Well, let's get to it. So thanks for being on the podcast. Yeah, no, thank you. It's good to be here. So could you tell the listeners a bit about uh, who you are and, and what you do? Okay, well, my name is Aaron Cheek and I'm a, a scholar of uh, I'm a scholar of philosophy and esotericism. I'm uh, mainly known for my work on the history of alchemy and in particular the work of the French hermetic philosopher René Chouala de Lubitsch. Uh, but since completing my academic studies, I've, uh, founded a, a press called Rubido Press and, um, I've been largely devoted to, uh, publishing, uh, texts, translations, commentaries on, um, hermetic and esoteric works, uh, in the last uh, few years, but generally my um, generally my work, uh, what I do is uh, straddles two zones. And one is academia, where I have kind of one foot in academia, and the other is esotericism in a, a more personal, mystical path. And so I've got one foot firmly planted there as well. And, uh, and then, then there's a sort of no man's land in between. So I kind of like, um, as I said, straddle 
these two zones. And uh, I, I just think that I've always felt that they shouldn't be mutually exclusive. You know, that you should you should be able to uh, you should be able to bring the scholarly rigor to the study of esotericism. Um, but you should never lose the, the, the spirit or the, the lifeblood of esotericism, you know, the mystical experience itself. Um, and I think that sort of balance of philosophy and mysticism is, uh, actually really powerful. And this is, you know, it's something that people like Sufrawadi, the, the Persian mystic, for instance, and philosopher, um, was very devoted to, but yeah, um, that having been said, yeah, I, I'm essentially a scholar and publisher. So I would like to start by asking you a bit about this Fulcanelli character. So could you tell a bit first for the listeners who might not know exactly who that mysterious individual was? Okay. Well, Fulcanelli still remains mysterious, but we know him primarily through the books that came out in the early 20th century uh, that were published under his name. So he published two books in French, and um, <clears throat> the first one was The Mystery of the Cathedrals. And that Really, the premise of that book is that the the, the Gothic cathedrals, the medieval cathedrals of uh, particularly France, were essentially alchemical texts in stone, and so that the entire symbolism of these temples, even though they, on an outer level, they are a, a Christian symbology, these are kind of vehicles for a an alchemical teaching on on the great work. And uh, his second book followed that approach up by looking at uh, different mansions in France and um, in other parts of Europe that had a lot of alchemical symbolism in their architecture and in their iconography. And uh, so he's really looking at this, uh, like, architecture and uh, visual symbolism as a way of conveying the, the mysteries of, of alchemy. And uh, so Fulconelli was, as I said, he, he still remains a mystery in terms of his identity, but um, some of the work I've done and other people have done attempts to kind of hone in on, on who that might be. And I guess, as far as I'm concerned, um, the main contenders are people like René Schwala de Lubitsch, um, Jean-Julien Champagne, and perhaps Pierre Dujols. Uh, and these were all um, important figures in the Parisian alchemical revival from the 1910s uh, onwards, um, the kind of esoteric circles in, in, in France. And... Um, at least to me, one of the more convincing uh, theories is that the Falconelli books represent more of a collaborative effort. Uh, at least, or at least, at least, they're an intersection of the work of two or more individuals. And so, pinning it on one person is um, perhaps misleading. 
but at the same time, that doesn't rule out that it might have actually been one person and uh, we just haven't kind of hit the nail on the head yet. So, um, <clears throat> and so there's other lines of inquiry. I, I often talk about this with my friend Krista, uh, Krista Berker, who I collaborated with on the Hermetic Recreations translation that we put out recently. And um, there's little details in, for instance, the preface to the Fulconelli volume where he's, where he's talking about the when he succeeds in, in achieving the alchemical opus, uh, he communicates to his master and his master or his master's wife replies back that they're overjoyed that, uh, at his success. You know, and it just gives you a little bit of an indication that um, of some of the connections that might be at play with identifying this individual. Um, so, yeah, that's something I think Krista and I would both like to actually flesh out um, and publish one day just just a full theory and analysis of of the Fulconelli identity. Um, but yeah, um, but the whole approach of looking at say a, a cathedral as an alchemical opus in stone, um, you can certainly see the same approach being taken by a figure like René Schwala de Lubitsch because that's exactly what he did with the Egyptian temples when he went to Egypt in uh, 1936 and he uh, he ended up living there for 15 years to exclusively study the um, Temple of Luxor and he was, he was doing exactly the same thing. He was taking an an architectural edifice, a temple, and interpreting it as essentially a hermetic text in stone. The first time, way before I knew who Fulcanelli was, when I was younger, I read uh, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, and the whole opening chapter of that book is all about uh, architecture being uh, the alphabet of the soul, or so I can't actually remember exactly what it said, but... There was something about the whole chapter about uh, architecture. The author, he like has a long chapter about that, which you have to get through before you get to the actual Hunchback of Notre Dame story. And that chapter finishes with like the Notre Dame. That's how he's like introducing it to as a as one of the m- main examples of this. So I'm wondering if maybe Fulcanelli got inspired because it's a famous book, you know. I mean, not the whole chapter, but that's like the core of the chapter. Yeah, that's interesting. I didn't know about the um, Notre, the Hunchback of Notre Dame connection. That's something I'd love to like go and read and, and chase up on. But it, yeah, it was it was a theme among the among in in French literary circles and esoteric circles before Fulconelli. He wasn't the first to really suggest that. Uh, the cathedrals held um, some kind of hermetic or alchemical mystery. Uh, but it's more in the way he unpacked it, I think. I think he, you know, his work has come down as, I wouldn't say famous, but uh, influential because precisely of because how he unpacks the symbolism uh, and and uses that to express or reveal the nature of the alchemical work. And of course, the, all of these people um, in, in those circles in the Parisian alchemical revival were, were practicing alchemists. They were, they were philosophical alchemists, yes, 
but they're also um, operative alchemists. So when they're unpacking the symbolism of the cathedrals, they're uh, they're doing so in a very in a way that has very concrete ramifications. So you can, instead of like reading alchemical text, you just look at these structures. Yeah, well, it's it's more that it's a it's a visual symbolism rather than say a textual uh, exegesis, you know. So, and I mean that's true of the cathedrals as just Christian texts in stone, you know, because certainly with Catholicism before <clears throat> Martin Luther. Uh, translated the Bible into the vernacular, uh, most lay Christians experienced the symbolism and the mystery of Christianity through the, just through the iconography and the visual display. Um, and the, and the same thing, and to help with Fulconelli, the point is that, well, this is also, this, this is also a vehicle for the alchemical mystery and, um, it's always been there just as you know you don't really have to be literate in 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 a textual sense to to be able to participate in that i had to i was googling here on the side because i had to make sure i wasn't completely remembering it incorrectly and in fact uh, the victor hugo he was arguing that the arrival of the printing press would kill architecture so he was also talking about the the deaths of architecture and in, in a sense it's kind of true because uh, modern architecture everything since the printing press has has gone down i mean they don't build Notre Dame these days not often anyway not like in the old days no no yeah no it's a it's a tragic loss uh i mean you look at modern churches versus uh you know, those, those Gothic cathedrals, there's just no comparison. Uh, and yeah, and beyond, <clears throat> you know, religious architecture, I mean, I, I definitely think we've lost so much more than we've gained. I mean, that's generally true of the modern world in its so-called advancements in general, uh, at least in terms of technology and so forth. So why was there a need, you think, for Fulganelli to be a secret uh, identity? Uh, that's, that's a good question. Um, it's, well, one thing, I mean, this, this may be part of the reason, um, Schwala de Lubitsch did make the claim later in his life that, um, <clears throat> he gave some of his research on the cathedral symbolism to this figure called Julian Champagne who was the illustrator to the volumes and uh, Champagne was the person who took the text to the publisher uh, as well. So he's directly connected to, he's the only person we know is directly connected to the text. Uh, anyway, Schwaler was involved with this, this Julien Champagne figure and they actually began a collaboration on um, the alchemy of stained glass. Uh, beginning in the 1910s. And um, so Schwaller makes a claim that around that time he gave his own research on cathedral symbolism to Champagne. And um, 
Champagne apparently said that, oh, this is this reveals too much. This we can't publish this. Uh, and um, so Schwaller didn't really think any more of it. And then, you know, 15, 20 years later, this book, uh, The Mystery of the Cathedrals, turns up. Uh, and Schwaller claims that, you know, it's full of all of his ideas and uh, suggested that Champagne stole his his work. Um, so that that may be, you know, if that is, if we can take that at face value, then that, you know, that's one reason why it may be using as a, a pseudonym. Um, the other factor is that, um, well, the other figure that seems to be part of that inner circle that at least maybe influenced the ideas that were feeding into the book was Pierre Dujols, who was a, uh, he was an esoteric hermetic author in his own right, but he was a, he was a classical philologist. So his style is much, very much about, uh, very similar to what is going on in Fulconelli. He's using old Greek words as a phonetic Kabbalah and he's breaking down, um, you know, ideas in terms of, um, what it might mean in Greek and these kind of, um, dual language puns or plays on words between Greek and French, you know, it's, it's really only something like a, a classical philologist and esotericist would do. So there's, and he died around the time just before the, the Fulconelli book came out. So it's possible that his work, his unpublished work, um, fed into that opus as well. So I, you know, I don't personally don't think it was entirely Schwaller's work that was just ripped off and published under a different name. I think, um, because stylistically Schwaller's work and, um, Fulconelli's work are very different. Um, Fulconelli is very ornate in, in, in his literary style where Schwaller is much more Germanic and much more, uh, streamlined, much more kind of bare bones. Um, so I definitely think there had to be a, another influence feeding into it. But yeah, um, so it could, uh, essentially it could just be because, um, you know, if he did take the work of other people, he didn't want, uh, his own name, you know, signifying that fact. You, you wrote a thesis on, on, uh, Swaller, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah. That was, he was the subject of my PhD thesis. Uh, I ended up uh, looking at his life and I looked at his biography in some detail because there hasn't really been a, a proper objective biography of him. Uh, I looked at his, and I looked at his alchemy in particular. Uh, and, and as part of that, I, I explored his color theory, his esoteric color theory, which was one of the major keys to his alchemy. I don't know how it works where you are, but, uh, in Europe, usually you have to go in front of a committee and they question you on your thesis and you have to defend it. Is it the same? Um, yes and no. Uh, it's um, like you have, you do have a thesis review process along the way. And um, I certainly went through those. And, um, but in um, the final thesis submission process, we, the thesis gets sent to two examiners and they will, they will, um, 
yeah, they will give their assessment and uh, and so forth. So they usually pick two specialists in, in your field uh, to to be the examiners for your thesis. Yeah, that was my question because I was thinking like uh, alchemy and maybe swallow. Maybe th- there's people where you were studying who don't know who these people even are. <laughs> so I guess it's a good idea to send it around. You know, it's a uh, it's not it's not it's not mainstream knowledge. Uh, alchemy, I mean. Definitely not. No, I mean, Schwaller is a fairly, in terms of, uh, you know, a PhD thesis in religious studies, which is what I was doing. Someone like Schwaller is um, definitely on the margins. He's not considered a major figure that you should be studying. But I've always considered him one of the most important hermetic philosophers of the 20th century and I felt uh, that his work needed to be uh, done due justice. Would would you consider that even if he didn't have the Fulcanelli connection? Yeah, I, I was more interested in him uh, on his own. Um, the Fulcanelli connection definitely came into it, especially the more you look into Schwaller's alchemy which is, was really the core focus of my thesis. I didn't, I mean, of course I touched on most aspects of his work, but um, I was really honing in on the, on his hermetic philosophy and his alchemy. And that of course took me to the heart of the, um, his connections uh, in Paris in the 1910s and 20s with yeah, figures like Julien Champagne and, uh, and others. Have you ever been to to Paris yourself? Actually, no. I um, it's still on my. It's, it still calls me. I mean, I've definitely been called to go in, in a very deep way. I've been to France um, when I was doing my PhD research. Actually, I went to Europe and uh, I was chasing down some of Schwaller's more rare books, and I went to. Uh, the Bibliothèque Nationale in Strasbourg, and also went to a small town. It's about fifteen or twenty minutes from Nice, uh, called Es sur Mer, which uh, the emblem of that town has uh, like a profound connection to the symbolism that Schwaller is working with in his alchemy. Uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the image, but there's the the arms or the emblem of this small fortified village uh, as has a, um, a phoenix um, standing on top of a human femur a human thigh bone and um, from the bottom of this, this thigh bone there's some um, some uh, vine leaves growing out of it and the motto underneath says moriendo renescor which means in dying, I am reborn. So it had this, has this really distinct uh, alchemical motif, which was actually at the core of Schwaller's alchemy, because uh, Schwaller had this whole idea that the the alchemical salts, you know, the most the, the most permanent parts of uh, any being, uh, that the parts that survive combustion and putrefaction. Uh, for Schwaller, they were 
located or condensed in the human thigh bone, at least for the human being. And uh, so the thigh bone was considered the source of or this kind of pivot point of death and palingenesis, of death and rebirth. Uh, and so this, um, this emblem really kind of speaks to the heart of that, uh, that symbolism and that process. And so I went to that specific township to get some good photos of the emblem and to see if I could find out any more about it. Um, but yeah, I, I certainly went to some cathedrals in Europe, but not not uh, any of the ones that made famous by the Fulconelli volumes. I uh, lived for a short time in Paris, and uh, I went to the. They have an excellent library there, the Bibliothèque Nationale of France, I guess it's called, or something like the main library. And um, I did. I found out that they had some really interesting books, and I, this was over ten years ago when I lived there. So I'm not in, so interested in it now. But back then, I was very interested in Adam Weishaupt and, and the Illuminati, the original texts that he wrote, and some of them were in that library. So I remember I was trying to watch, see them. And they wouldn't allow me to go see them because they were actually in the part of the library that was closed to the public because those were so old and, you know, valuable books. So if you, you know, you had to wear gloves and you had you had to have like a assistant to help you. You couldn't just run, run around on your own. So I managed to, um, I, I wrote a letter to myself with that from a, in my, from a, you know, imaginary publishing house that I was doing research on some book and that I managed to get in in that way just to, to you know to look at this stuff because I'm a bit of a bibliophile and when I was in there looking at this book there was another I guess guest or customer in the room and when he took off his gloves because he was finished he had like a Freemason ring and I was like oh now I'm now I'm in the center of all this <laughs> yeah yeah that, that's pretty cool um it's great having yeah i mean those european libraries are really like fantastic repositories of you know so many old texts that uh we just don't really we don't really even have any idea of um you know the depth and quality that that is um languishing away on these old shelves um so yeah it's 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 a really nice experience to go into those old libraries where yeah where they where they give you the gloves and you know they're being super cautious around you and uh i did that uh, in a few libraries in europe but yeah that was probably probably 10 years ago that i was there and um i've always been meaning to get back because i as i'm a bit of a bibliophile and i guess something of a, of a europhile and I always feel that the traditions I study are, are really have they really have their heart and lifeblood in Europe. Have you ever been in the or know about the Ritman Library in Amsterdam? Yeah, yeah, that's one. That's one library I did go to uh, when I when I was there. Um, because they have some excellent uh, alchemy books. Of course, yeah. No, that, I mean, their the whole specialty is esoteric and hermetic western esoteric uh texts you know it's the basis of their collection it's a beautiful library yeah and it's it's right in the heart of amsterdam and it's 
yeah, they're doing really good work. You know, you have this uh, publishing house. Uh, I don't know, maybe you already thought about it, but uh, they actually, Ritman Library actually uh, receives books. So if you have like uh, maybe this most recent one, that's uh, the translation of um, the new trans in only English translation book. I can't remember what it was called. Oh, yeah, the Hermetic Recreations. Yeah, exactly. Uh, if you send it to them, they'll include it in their library and... Um, uh, you immortalize the book, but maybe you've already done that. No, uh, that's a really good idea, actually. I haven't, I haven't actually thought of reaching out to special collections like that, but uh, that's a really good idea. Uh, I'll probably do that. Because um, we've got, well, Rubido Press, I mean, the vision of Rubido is, is um, broader than just esoteric texts, but... Um, certainly hermetic philosophy and, um, you know, classic publishing, you know, good translations with critical, critical commentary on neglected hermetic classics, uh, is really part of the heart and soul of Rubido Press. So, um, we've got two books out now, uh, two editions of, um, old hermetic alchemical text. One is the Hermetic Recreations, uh, and one that I've just put out is the Basilian Aphorisms, uh, which are you know in the tradition of ba uh, Basil Valentine. Um, and we've got more in the pipeline. We've got more coming. So, um, but that's part of a series that we're unfolding slowly. Uh, and it's not like simple pocket books. You've done like more advanced copies of these books. I mean, they look like you've done some work on the actual how they look. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, part you know, one one reason I wanted to do what I do to start my own publishing house was because um, I was often dissatisfied with how some publishers treat um their texts in terms of design and typography you know you, I, too often you see a really interesting text published and it's it's just got an awful it's design sensibility and it's layout and it's you know it's typography are just abysmal and i just think for good texts you they really need to be done justice to they really need uh, beautiful design and, and good layout. And, um, so that's, you know, that's, that's one thing that's very important to me. Uh, another thing I'm doing with some of these texts, certainly with the hermetic recreations and the, the bazillion aphorisms is that we're, I'm publishing as a, in a dual language edition. So we have the, with the hermetic recreations, we have the French text, on the left-hand side and, and the English translation on the right-hand side. So the facing page translation of, of the text, um, along with some footnotes to, you know, explain details along the way and introduction and commentary and things like that. So that becomes like a resource, uh, not just for a scholar, but also for a, a practitioner, you know, uh, they'll want these books to become go-to volumes, uh, you know, for, for decades. Because if you take like a normal modern fictional book you, in another language, you can Google translate it and kind of read it anyway. But when it comes to like these kind of hermetic texts, if you like Google translate them, the meaning, I mean, because it's so symbolic and 
so many allegories on that that the Google Translate just might turn it into a completely different text. It's complete, so it's impossible to use those tools only for like very simple texts. Yeah, oh, you definitely you can't rely on Google Translate for much more than uh, a rough idea, you know. And um, but also, there's just there's just certain expressions or words that it gets absolutely wrong, you know. And uh, so, yeah, you need you need careful, uh, accurate translations that are sensitive to context and style. Um, so the Hermetic Recreations text, actually, I worked on that with, uh, three other people. I worked on that with, um, Krista Berker, who I mentioned before, who I've, I often chat about, um, the Fulconali mystery with, um, John Koopmans, who's, a another collaborator of Krista's who's in Canada. And, um, so basically how, how the book came about was John and Krista approached me and said they had this translation and, and would I like to publish it? So of course I said, of course I said yes. Um, and then they, they gave the translation to Stanislas Klosowski de Rola, uh, who is, is a, a fairly, um, he's a solid alchemical scholar and author. In his own right, he's published a handful of books on alchemy, um, and he they, they gave the translation to him to to verify or to check, and he ended up um, doing his own translation himself. And uh, so, what happened? Because um, because Stanislas felt that the translation that Christopher and John had made was, uh, cause Christopher and John had tried to render the text in a very clear, uh, fashion. And, uh, Stanislas, well, he felt that the archaisms of the text and all the kind of old expressions needed to be preserved. Uh, and some of those are pretty obscure and there might be an English, uh, then it might even be an English word that is a, the equivalent of, say, an old French word, but it's such an archaic word. Like, like one example is um, mortiferous, which is the English equivalent of, uh, of a French word. Uh, it just means deadly. But, um, you know, if you use the expression mortiferous, you preserve this archaic sensibility of the word. Uh, and so Stash or Stanislas was – his translation preserved all these kind of archaic expressions and so forth. And, uh, so they, so I ended up being given two, essentially two different translations of the text. And my job was to, um, synthesize them, but I'm a translator of, I've worked cause I worked with Schwaler's, uh, I translated a lot of Schwaler's works as part of my thesis. So I've worked closely with French hermetic texts, uh, myself. So I went through the book, I went through the two translations, synthesized them, and tried to make the best uh, amalgam, I suppose, of the two versions. But while also doing a lot of translation on my own, there's certain passages that I felt needed to be reworked, or the passages where Krista and John's translation was at variance with Stash's translation. Uh, in those instances, I would often retranslate a paragraph or a passage. Um, 
so it was yeah it was really it was kind of fun to work on this kind of collaborative translation with three other people um so you know um one one good thing about this book is that you get um you essentially have four translators um it's, it's filtered through four translators so it's not you know it's 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 definitely much deeper than a Google translation. <laughs> yeah, you could say that. Uh, is it? It must also be more like a labor of love because it's not like millions of people will buy this book, but there's a lot of work put into it for a very small group of people around the world who love these books. Definitely, yeah. I mean, what I do is it's pretty much everything I do is a labor of love. I wouldn't be doing this otherwise. Uh, it's not definitely not in it for the money. Uh, <laughs> um, but, um, yeah, no, I, I'm just at a point in life where I've, I've worked, I guess, most of my adult life to get to a point where I can um, focus on the things I love and, and, and do the labor of love uh, and be relatively um, stable in, in doing so. It's taken a while to get here, but um, it's, it's almost starting to, uh, you know, gain traction. So uh, when it comes to typography, do you have like a, a certain font that you just have to almost avoid to use again and again? <laughs> You're like, <laughs> you know, like, because I, I know I, I fall into that trap. I have some fonts that I like, now stop using them. Like, you know, don't repeat yourself. <laughs> yeah, it, it becomes, I mean, especially, especially for ones that you really like and that work really well. Um, you tend to, yeah, you tend to go back to them and then of course everything starts looking the same. Uh, so I have a couple that I probably use a little too much. Um, I do like Minion, um, partly because Robert Bringhurst who wrote, he's probably, he wrote what is known as the, the typographic Bible. It's a book called the elements of typographic style. And uh, it's kind of a history, but also a, a prescription manual for for good typography. And he he types it that in this this uh, typeface called Minion, and um, it's actually really nice. It is a really nice uh, typeface. So I tend to often default to that, um, but um, for the hermetic recreations, I. I used a, a version of Garamond, uh, Garamond um, Pro. It's the Adobe uh, version of Garamond designed by Robert Slimbach, I think. Um, and because it's a French text and Garamond is a French typeface from, uh, I don't know if it's exactly that period. It might be a little bit later, but um it's more consistent with the uh, the time and period of the text than, say, a bunch of other typefaces I could have chosen. But yeah, I do like to vary things and try new typefaces, and it really kind of depends on the flavor of the book, you know, and the and the style. Like if I'm doing a more academic style piece, I will definitely use fonts that have more of the character of an academic text. Um, I personally actually one of the fonts that I overuse is actually Garamond. <laughs> I don't know why I I always thought it looked nice. It it, it looks like a more uh, 
a classier version of Times New Roman or something like that. Like, uh, just looks it's not so fat. No, Garamond's a beautiful font, and it's. I don't think it's a problem to overuse it. I felt sometimes when I do use Garamond, I feel well, it's not very original, but sometimes, you know, um, some some style is classical and almost eternal, and it's okay to use that. Um, I have one issue with Garamond actually that I sometimes don't think works with it, and that's when you put something in italics. It usually go- goes very like it, it. I don't know. It, I don't know. I don't know. It doesn't look as good in italic as it does in normal. You know. I do like the Garamond italic is very um, very dynamic. You know, it's. Um, I do like the Garamond italic, but what's there's, all, there's different versions of Garamond, you know, because basically what we have in, in uh, you know, when we have fonts on our computer, someone has, has gone back and tried to mimic what was originally a metal type face on, on, in, in a printed book. And so they kind of, they ta- you know, they mimic this as best they can and make a, a typeface out of it, a digital typeface. And uh, so there's been a number of, attempts at Garamond. So, and they're all, you know, to probably to the average observer, they all look the same, but, you know, to probably people like us, there's lots of subtle differences that are very important. Um, so there's a few different, yeah, there's a few different ones out there. Um, most people's word processing programs come with a standard version of Garamond, which is not not a bad one, but it's not usually the one I'll use these days. Uh, so, well, the one I used in Hermetic Recreations was a, a different version, and it had its italic is a little bit different. It's a little bit more subdued than the standard Garamond that you get in on on, on everyone's computer. Uh, so, yeah, you might appreciate that one. Um, and what's really cool there was a um, there's a version of Garamond called Garamond Premier Pro, which I used in the Brazilian aphorisms for the Latin text. It's like an italic, but it's like a, uh, it's a, uh, more of a display italic. So there's lots of ligatures and uh, flourishes that you can do with it that um, Look really nice. They're probably little. You know, sometimes depending depending on what you're trying to do, but they can be a little bit too much for for ordinary purposes. But in this context, it was really nice to be able to pull out all the stops and put in ligatures and um, typogra- typographic flourishes um, and and so on. My uh, my little daughter is in a, a daycare, and the other day I got a newsletter from this daycare and. The whole newsletter was written in Comic Sans, and I was like, <laughs> "That's that's so ugly." <laughs> Maybe it fits the daycare, but uh, yeah, this is um, a. Um, I'm sure the listeners are, most of them are lost on these fonts because now we're going into super bibliophilia. <laughs> yeah, but I think you know, I think people appreciate. You know, I think uh, whether or not you're a typography aficionado or not i think most people will crack open a book like say if they cracked open the hermetic recreations they would be able to tell that a lot of care 
and attention has gone into its production and its design and its layout. And, uh, you know, they might not know the details or be able to pick the font, but the, the response is fairly immediate. You know, they, they know and can feel the difference and appreciate it. I read your bio and it said that you had an interest in wine and uh, I've been thinking about the wine is uh, also, you know, a big part of, of especially Christian texts. They always talk about wine and um, also uh, in alchemy they use the word wine a lot. Um, so uh, do you think there's something esoteric with wine other than the standard love of wine? Yeah, it's, yeah, it's always a, it's definitely a rich symbol, uh, it, it, even just in Christianity. But um, in alchemy, you know, the white and red wine were often seen as symbolic equivalents of silver and gold or, or king and queen. You know, there were expressions of the white and the red principle um, as it manifested in different kingdoms and, and so forth. Uh, but wine is, of course, it's it's got spirit in it. And alchemy is often very much about, I mean, a lot of the the pragmatic processes of alchemy are, are very similar to those of um, winemaking or, or spirit making. You know, you, you're fermenting things, you're distilling things. Um, so... Yeah, I mean, even the the laboratory alchemy that I work with, uh, often when I'm buying things I need, I, I go, I'll go to a home brew shop or a, a, a shop that supplies equipment for, you know, beer making or wine making or spirit making because it's you know it's kind of the the bread and butter of um, of the alchemical technology. So if people want to uh, uh, have a look more at uh, your publishing house, what, what, who do you suggest should go there and, and what uh, can they get from it? Okay, well, um, I think anyone listening to your podcast should have some kind of point of intersection uh, with Rubido Press, I would hope. Um, at the moment, Rubido Press is mainly uh, mainly a collection of esoteric texts. Uh, we've got other things coming that, that are going to unfold different parts of Rubido's vision, uh, and that's going to be more along the lines of philosophy and poetry. Um, but at the moment, the the press is um, displaying its its hermetic uh, its hermetic sympathies. So um, we have books on like the books we've just spoken about on alchemy and hermetic philosophy. But we've also got some books on um, astrology, which I consider a, a hermetic science and not distinct uh, or not disconnected from alchemy. Um, I'm just finishing a book at the moment on ancient astrology, like the Greco-Roman or Hellenistic era astrology. Uh, it's a huge um, technical manual, essentially, uh, uh, on how to practice 
astrology in the way that uh, they did in Hellenistic times. Um, so, and you know, back in back in the Hellenistic era, alchemy was very much considered a science of Hermes, and uh, and so it, it's that sort of fits part of my personal vision of, of bringing the sister sciences back together again. And for me, that means not just alchemy, but astrology and theurgy. You know, um, so. Um, but yeah, um, I, I would say anyone drawn to Hermes and the Hermetic arts will definitely find a, a welcome home in Rubido Press. Uh, and if you come back in six months, uh, you'll see some more. You'll see some different material that's more poetic and uh, philosophical. Uh, one of my other projects is translating the works of a German poet and philosopher named Jean Gebser. And Gebser was, in some respects, the father of integral philosophy. He, had the, he was into the philosophy of consciousness and in particular sought to articulate what he called the integral consciousness. And uh, so I've got a, his first book. But he, he was before he was a philosopher of consciousness, he was a... Uh, he was a poet, and his first book is on Rilke, the German poet, and uh, the influence of Spain on Rilke's uh, development and on his poetry. So um, that's kind of unfolding a, a very different leaf to what people might expect of Rubido. Uh, but if they know if they know my work, that's really not that surprising. But um, but as I said, it's part of the vision of unfolding uh, the broader uh, raison d'être of the, the press, which is not just esoteric, but it's philosophical, poetic, and ultimately aesthetic. You know, it's about unfolding the more artistic side of of these traditions. I really like uh, Paracelsus' work, and uh, you can get a lot of it in English. But I haven't looked in a few years now, so I don't know if there's been a change. But all the books I have of Paracelsus, uh, it doesn't look like there's been any love in making them. It's just it's the text, yes, but uh, the books themselves are quite ugly, I would say. So that would be something I would be looking for. Yeah, that it happens all too often. I mean... Don't get me wrong. There are some really good presses out there that do beautiful work with esoteric texts. Um, and in particular, I can mention Three Hands Press uh, in the United States or Scarlet Imprint, who are in the UK. Um, they, you know, they do beautiful work. Um, and so, you know, Rubido Press hopes to really stand alongside similar presses like that in in terms of giving uh, esoteric texts a uh, Due aesthetic justice, um, but yeah, generally uh, the conditions are pretty dire. I've I've noticed that uh, there's because I know about Scarlet as well. There's been a few of those popping up all over the place, and I'm wondering that with uh, you know the reading books on the tablet and and PDFs and all that, if it's just created the same thing as it did for the vinyl, like it brings back the the real book 
and this like mass-produced book it goes away and it becomes digital but the real the proper book has a revival yeah totally i think that i think that is happening i think um it's kind of like you know what jung called enantiodromia that 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 process where you push something to its extreme and then it starts to turn and return to its opposite and uh yeah you definitely get that with uh media uh like you said with vinyl and, and digital music but also yeah with books i mean uh i don't know i've never really taken to ebooks i spent enough time on a computer work you know looking at a screen um editing books and 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 stuff so i'm not really interested in reading books in that format unless i unless i have no other option yeah i agree uh, i because uh, i have I, maybe it's just because of how my youth was spent but i have this habit of when i'm reading a book i always uh, i always have a tendency to smell it because <laughs> they all smell different i don't know why I, I i always smell them you know and some smell better than others you know yeah, yeah, no, that's it's definitely a thing among uh, among bibliophiles, because um, you know a good, a well produced book will smell almost like vanilla and, and other complex things, and it's. But sometimes you crack open a book and it just smells like the glue that they bound it with, and it's it's really really horrible. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's definitely it's definitely a thing. You're not the only one. So what's the website and that if people want to check it out? Oh, it's uh, rubido.press. So just go to www.rubido.press. Yeah, uh, and it's R-U-B-E-D-O. And that's also an alchemy term, you could say? Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. It's um, the perfecting phase of the alchemical process. So alchemy uh, expressed its process in three color phases going from black which they called negrito the blackening which is more about putrefaction and the fermentation which unlocks you know unlocks the the mystery from the matter uh, and then there was a white phase called um, albedo which is more about purification and then finally there was the red phase called rubido which is the perfection so it's kind of like putrefaction um, purification and perfection. And I chose Rubido as the name for the press because I wanted to attract works that had that spirit of alchemical perfection, uh, or at least were, uh, you know, inspired by that. Um, but also, you know, on another level, if art is an alchemical process, I wanted to attract works that um, where the artistic process itself strove to the same kind of perfection that uh, you strive for in alchemy. Um, and, you know, there's this sort of vital living uh, lifeblood in that final stage, uh, which I wanted to capture in uh, Rubido's publications. Cool. So thanks a lot for taking the time to talk to me. Yeah, no, thank you. That's, I'm, I'm always happy to talk with um, typography aficionados and bibliophiles. Uh, but yeah, no, thank you. 
Go to rubido.press to check it out some more and get some of those books I have myself. And they are looking, or not they, I only I got one. It is looking very nice, I must say, in my private collection of occult books. Uh, okay, so that is it for now. Well, actually it is not. I have a film suggestion before we end this episode, so... Uh, here is another the moving image in a moving vehicle. Usually I mention films that you should watch that are quite old. But today I'm going to talk about a film that's not so old fairly recent and I actually watched it for the first time yesterday and uh, it's called The Lobster starring Colin Farrell and Raquel Welsh and uh, oh, what's his name now? John C. Riley, you know the guy who plays one of the brothers in Step Brothers which is one of the few modern comedy films that I think is quite funny but um, uh, the Lobster is a film set in an alternative reality where uh, you're not. You, there's a society where you're not allowed to be single, and if you're single, you have to go to this hotel and uh, enter some sort of Hunger Games scenario. And if you don't, if you don't manage to find a partner in a certain amount of dates you are going to be turned into an animal. And Colin, Colin Farrell plays this guy who, you know, because you get to choose which animal you are going to be transformed into. And he picks the, a lobster for some reason. Or not for some reason, he, he tells in the film why he picks a lobster, but I'm not going to spoil that. Um, and then eventually he escapes from this hotel and he starts living with these people in the woods and here it's illegal to have a partner so it's the opposite and it's a it's a funny a funny little film and i'm not going to say much more about it because i don't want to ruin it for you uh, so all you got to do is try and get a copy of the lobster now let's uh, sit back and uh, contemplate this episode by listening to Emily Cooper and the track Silent Sea from the album Chapter One. If you like Emily, have a listen to her over at emilycooper.bandcamp.com. Next week we are going to have a look at psychic abilities. Freedom is in the mind. Is there nothing I can say? Is there nothing I can do? To change your mind in any way I hope it will be okay Someday with you All these twists and all these turns I will never ever learn That life is not about the fight Trust the life's about the light I share with you The light I share with you All we can do is hold on All we can do is be strong 
There's beauty in silence and learning to listen to life All these twists and all these turns will I never ever learn But life is not about the fight, trust the life's about the light I share with you The light I share with you Silence and learning to listen to life.